Lord, as always, we, we thank you um, that, that we know you. We don't take that for granted. That is a work of grace. Uh, we love you because you first loved us. Uh, you did a, a great work in bringing us to yourself. And I think of uh, those great words of C.S. Lewis that he came kicking and screaming into the kingdom. Um, we were so caught up in our own lives and, and in our own selves. Uh, you broke through. We were dead. We were blind. You made us alive. And we thank you for that. We're just overwhelmed and awed by what you've done to bring us to Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your, your, your word. This church here is, uh, is focused on the word, and we thank you for that because, uh, you know, Lord, we live in an area, uh, there, there are so many churches in this uh, city. Uh, whenever friends come and visit from out of town, they always are amazed at how many churches are in Dallas. How many big churches? But we also know, Lord, that not every church and not every big church really teaches the word. We're thankful this church is focused on the scriptures. It's the scriptures that set us free. It's the scriptures that tell us the truth. And you've said that if we continue in your word, then we are truly disciples. And we shall know the truth, and it's the truth that makes us free. It's not gimmicks. It's not location, it's not this, it's not that, it's truth. So that's why we're here. Um, now all of us in here, we don't agree on every point of doctrine. We, 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 we just don't. Um, some of us come from different backgrounds, we've had different experiences, we um, have different circumstances, uh, raised in different you know, denominations. But uh, what we have in common, Lord, is that we want your word to be the authority. And whatever we hear, whatever um, we, we hear from, uh, from a teacher, whatever we hear on a tape, whenever we hear on, on the radio, we take that and we match it up to your word because your word is the authority. We don't put anybody on pedestals. We put Jesus on the pedestal. And his word is authoritative. So may we never forget that. May that be our grid as we go through life. And tonight, Lord, as... We jump into James again, such a practical book, such an honest book. Do some surgery on us. Uh, sometimes we need surgery and we're not aware of it. And that could very well be the case. So we would ask you to take that good scalpel of truth and where we need to be cut, cut us. Where something needs to be removed, uh, remove it. And then, Lord, when you do that surgery, you're always so quick to heal. Um, that, that surgery is, is not designed to ruin us or to immobilize us. It's designed to uh, mature us. And uh, to answer the prayer that I think almost every guy in this room has probably prayed, and that is, Lord, use me in your way and somehow make my life count. That's what we all want. We don't want to waste our lives. We don't want to waste our time on this earth. We, we want to know that our lives are counting for eternity. So, Lord, that's going to mean that we're going to have to grow and we're going to have to mature and we're going to have to go through a process and we're all in it. There are no shortcuts. No one avoids it. No one gets a pass. Uh, 
you take us all through it. So we just want to make sure tonight that our hearts are right, that our spirits are open, that our minds are teachable. So we're counting on you to do the work, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us for this study in James, what we've been doing, we've been going through James, and we've been eating like a bunch of uh, women at a luncheon. And when I say that, if you get women together for a luncheon and you get guys together for a luncheon, there's usually a difference. Uh, <clears throat> does your wife ever say to you, uh, you shouldn't take such big bites? Does she ever say that? My wife says that to me. Uh, a lot of times we get focused on the food and we're taking big bites and we're chowing it down. Uh, we get in a hurry and, you know, we got other things in our mind. Now, you go to a women's luncheon and they tend to cut things up in very small portions. And uh, they, they even drink their coffee like this, you see. Uh, most of us don't drink coffee. We have an IV drip in the morning that just is inserted right into the main vein. Uh, when we started in James, we were going really slow. We, we were just shaving off little morsels. Well, we picked it up last week. We're really picking it up this week because we're in James 2, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to do the whole chapter tonight in James 2. What we're going to do is gorge in one bite about a third of a pound of ground round and chew on it and attempt to digest it and get it down. So that's where we're going is James chapter 2. James chapter 2 is a chapter that has caused uh, a lot of difficulty for some people. Uh, it caused difficulty for Martin Luther. Uh, I'm not, now, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther. Martin Luther King was named after Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther was one of the men of whom it can be said that God used him to literally change the course of the world. Um, he, he was used to bring about what we call the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic priest in Germany. He was a, he was a scholar. Uh, he wanted to find peace with God. He had difficulty finding peace with God because he could not get the sense that his sins were forgiven. He had a very tender conscience. Uh, he was aware of, of the condition of his heart. He, he was a very honest man. He was a very transparent man. He was a very gruff man. He, he was a man's man, Martin Luther was. But he didn't miss around when it came to God. And he was very honest about his sin. And he would do penance and he would do all these things and he would take uh, several days and he would write out every sin he had ever committed and confess it. And then he would fall asleep in exhaustion and wake up and realize that there were some things he had forgotten so he hadn't been forgiven. Because you see... Martin Luther believed, because he was part of the Roman Catholic system, that the way that you were granted forgiveness was by, was by your works. That's what was taught in that system of Roman Catholicism. It's still taught in Roman Catholicism. That's why people light candles. That's why people do penance. Well, Martin Luther was studying the Scriptures. And as he studied the Scriptures, the Lord used the Book of Romans to set him free. Because when he read that we are justified by faith, it all clicked in. It all clicked in that the basis for our forgiveness with God is not what we do, but it's what Jesus has done. And he got it. And it changed his life. And he began to stand against the church. 
And there was a practice going on. If you go to Europe and you see the great cathedrals, uh, it took some bucks to build those things. They, they, you, you talk about doing some capital campaigns. Those guys uh, pretty much plundered everybody, and they were still short. So they had to get creative. So there was a guy who was part of the Roman Catholic Church by the name of Tetzel. And Tetzel got this idea, hey, you know what we could do? We could start selling indulgences. Now, what are indulgences? Well, he got this idea. See, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that you've got heaven and you've got hell, but you've got an in-between place called purgatory. And there's just a problem with that because purgatory is not in the Bible. Purgatory doesn't exist. Purgatory is not real. Nothing in the scriptures about purgatory. So it's a figment of a religious system. Uh, Tetzel got this idea. Hey, what we could do is we could raise money by saying to people, if you give X amount of money to the, to the cathedral, we will... Um, uh, so you give 5,000, we'll take 500 years off your great-grandfather's time in purgatory. Now, that sounds funny to us, but these people were going for it. And Martin Luther, who had been raised in this system of works and uh, had been um, uh, tortured by it because he could never find forgiveness, when he discovered grace, um, it changed his whole life. And he took on the entire Roman Catholic Church. Well, he had to go on trial, and as he went to this trial, he thought, Quite frankly, he was going to die. He thought he was going to be drawn and quartered because other men who had taken on the church had been burned alive. And he figured that was going to happen to him. Uh, without going into a lot of details, it didn't happen to him. He was given a reprieve. He was allowed to go back to his home for three weeks, but then he had to return for another trial. On his way home from the trial, he was kidnapped. A group of mounted soldiers came upon his wagon, grabbed him, put a hood over his head, he didn't know what was going on. Well, they took him for 12, 14 hours. They rode. He didn't have a clue. When they took the hood off and they arrived at the destination, he realized it wasn't his enemies, it was his friends. His friends kidnapped him in order to save his life. And they put him in a castle at Wartburg. And he wasn't there for weeks. He was there for months and months and months. And he was getting stir-crazy. He wasn't a guy to sit around. Uh, before they grabbed him out of the wagon, he was able to get his Hebrew Bible and his Greek New Testament. And that's all he had with him. But after he was there a few weeks, he got an idea. He thought, if I'm going to be here, why don't I use the time, and why don't I translate the Bible into German? The Bible wasn't available in the language of the people. So God used that time in Luther's life. And that message that had set him free from reading the Bible, well, most people couldn't read the Bible. He said, let's translate it into the everyday language, and he did. And the Reformation took off like a wildfire. Now, when Luther published his Bible, here's something that's interesting. He didn't like the book of James. And what he did was he took James out of its normal spot and he put it in the back in an appendix. Now, why did he do that? Well, you know what? You've got to understand who he was and what his context was. He had been so indoctrinated with works that when he read in James chapter 2, now, he didn't say it wasn't inspired. He just had trouble putting it together. When he read in James chapter 2, verse 14, these words, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. 
But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Well, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, and the scripture was fulfilled which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by faith, uh, by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This has troubled a lot of people, not just Luther. It's troubled a lot of people because it seems to be in opposition to what Paul says, uh, especially in Romans, that the just shall live by faith. Are we justified by faith or are we justified by works? So you can understand a guy like Luther that spent most of his life doing works in order to be justified, and then one day as he's reading, the Spirit of God illumines the Word of God, and he understands that he's not justified by those works, he's justified by grace. You can see why he'd have a problem. There is no problem, and there is no contradiction. It all fits. Um, let's start in Ephesians 2, then we'll come back to James. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 8, uh, pretty common words to many of us. Paul says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, many of us grew up in, in churches that emphasize works. Uh, I grew up in a church that really didn't emphasize grace. Yet in our church, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, there was always an altar call. And um, I, pretty much, I pretty much went forward just about every time there was an altar call. Because we didn't teach grace in our church. We, church, we always were talking about that you had to be right with God. And... Uh, so every time they give an invitation, I'd go forward because I knew I wasn't right because since the last time I went forward, the week before, I'd screwed up. I mean, I'm only seven years old. I mean, I was on a life of crime. I was on a life of sin, putting chewing gum under the desk, you know, in third grade or whatever it was. But, but see, when grace isn't emphasized, uh, and it wasn't emphasized, uh, I, I, there was no assurance of salvation there was no assurance that you were forgiven. It was very much works-based. And it was kind of frightening. I remember my brother Mike, when he was about seven years old, he came home from school, got off the bus, and you know my mom was always home. Well, she had run next door to get something from a neighbor, and Mike walked in, and Mom wasn't there. Well, Mom was always there. And her car was in the driveway, and he's, he's thinking, where was Mom? And she's not around. So then he called my dad, and my dad didn't answer. Well, if you were raised the way we were raised, there was only one solution to this predicament. The rapture had occurred. 
Now, that's funny to us. It wasn't funny to my brother. It traumatized him. It traumatized him as a seven-year-old kid. Why? Because all he'd ever heard, quite frankly, was works. Oh, can you be forgiven? Yeah. But, but when you sin again, you're not forgiven. That's a tough way to live your life. I mean, that's a real hard way to live your life. So there was no assurance. There was no assurance. We didn't understand that when Jesus went to the cross and died on the cross, that he paid for our sins, past, present, and future. See, I thought that Jesus, I knew he paid for my past sins, and I thought he'd pay for my present sins if I confessed my sins. But see, I was sort of like Martin Luther. If I didn't confess his sin, I didn't think it was forgiven. But when you understand what Jesus did on the cross, and when Jesus died on the cross, how many of your sins were future? All of them. That's, that's kind of a liberating thought. Because on the cross, Jesus paid it all. Donald, Donald Gray Barnhouse used to quote that hymn, and he used to quote it wrongly. Jesus paid it 90%. Uh, most of it I owe. Sin left a crimson stain. He washed it dingy gray. That's not how it goes. Jesus paid it all. When Jesus was on the cross, I, I, you weren't born and I wasn't born. But at that moment in history, he paid for my sin and your sin. And it was all future. So as I stand here today, if I've trusted in Christ and in his work on the cross... And I receive that by faith, and it's all grace, not by works. That means that my past sins have been paid for. It means that my present sins have been paid for. And it means the sins I have yet to commit have already been paid for. And in our church, they'd say, oh, don't say that. Don't say your future sins are paid for. Well, why not? Oh, well, because you'll go out and live like hell. No, you won't. Not when you understand what Jesus did. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's right. May it never be. No, we don't trample on the grace of God. We honor it. We adore it. It's all by grace. Now follow me here. For by grace you've been saved through faith, Ephesians 2.8. And that not of yourselves, that's the gift of God. Not as a result of works that any man should boast. And we all say amen to that. But that's not the end of the sentence. He's not done yet. For a grace you've been saved through faith, that on of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. Now watch this. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God created beforehand that we might walk in them. Here's what the Lord does. First of all, he gives us physical life. He calls us into existence. So we're conceived by our parents. We start on our journey in life. And then at some point in our life, he calls us to himself. And that's Ephesians 2.8. And as he said to Nicodemus in, uh, what is it, John 3, uh, Nicodemus, you must be born again. So when Christ comes into our lives, we're born again. Now, it just doesn't stop there. Why is it? that he's given us physical life, and why is it that he has now given us spiritual life? It's because he has a plan for our lives. There's a biblical term for this. When we say, how many of you guys are okay with the fact that God has a plan for your life? 
Would you raise your hand? You okay with that? You comfortable with that? All right. How many, all right, now let me tell you what that's called. That's called predestination. Now, a lot of guys that just raise their, oh, yeah, God has a plan for my life. Oh, that's good. But you say predestination? Mm, well, mm, mm. I'm, not sure I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I remember years ago doing a conference, and afterwards, and I was teaching on predestination. I never said the word, because these were a bunch of guys I knew theologically where they were. So I never used the word. And afterwards, this guy came up to me. He's probably in his 70s. He came up to me, and he said, you know, that sounded an awful lot like predestination to me. I said, you're very astute. I said, that was predestination. He said, well, I don't believe in predestination. I said, how long have you not believed in the Bible? He said, what? I said, how long have you not believed in the Scriptures? He said, I, I believe in the Scriptures. I said, no, you don't. He goes, I believe every word. I said, no, you don't. I mean, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you don't. Said, read Acts 2, read Acts 4. Jesus was delivered up to the cross by the predetermined will of God. It was predestined that Christ go to the cross. If it wasn't predestined that Jesus goes to the cross, none of us are forgiven of our sins. And then you go to Ephesians 1, speaking of us, it says in love, he predestined us. According to the, and we get all hot and bothered. Well, you know, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that. Hey, drink that iced tea or something, man. What does that mean? All predestination means is that God's got a plan for your life. And aren't you glad he does? Because your plans haven't worked out real well, have they? You're not doing real well on your plan, and I'm not doing real well on my plan. But he's got a plan, and all it means is he's going to pull it off in our lives. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. And aren't you glad that's what he's doing? So let's go back to Ephesians 2.8 and this James thing. But it's by grace. It is by grace. Uh, you know, it's not of myself. Yes, it's not works. It's not works. But he saves us, and he doesn't stop there. He saves us because he has good works planned for us to do. He wants our lives to count. He wants to use us. So the good works, now you've got to follow this in Ephesians 2.8. This is why there's no contradiction with what James says. See, if you really know Christ, good works will come out of your life. Not good works to earn salvation. Salvation is free. Now, it costs Jesus everything. But he offers it to us as a free gift, doesn't he? So we don't earn it. We don't give blood to the Red Cross to earn brownie points. You know, the old idea, well, I just hope at the end of my life, you know, the good things I've done, you know, balance out the bad things I've done, and it tilts. Hey, you're out of luck, pal. You're out of luck. That's not going to happen. It's just not going to work. The Bible says our filthiness, our filthiness, the Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags. And if you really start delving into that filthy rag stuff, we kind of clean it up a little bit. We kind of sanitize it. The idea there is our righteousness is as... Uh, you guys already had dinner? Our righteousness is as uh, soiled undergarments. Did you get that? The best you can do is soiled 
underwear. Are you getting this? Well, I'm going to get even more graphic because I want you to get this. We're talking diarrhea. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's the idea. Soiled, vomit. You ever have to deal with that stuff? If you were smart, you let your wife handle it when the kids got sick. There's no way I'm touching that stuff. I got to go study the Bible. You take care of that, honey. God's called me to a higher calling. <laughs> I was talking about a today, and we were a guy from Focus on the Family. We were talking about this book he's writing, and just about how many young couples that aren't having kids, and and how sad that. Now there are couples that can't have kids, and you talk to them, and they sure wish they could. But so many couples, Christian couples, are being influenced by the world system and the affluence, and you know. They're just being influenced that by that than they are the Word of God. When so often family and children, those are the things God uses in our lives to grow us up, you know? I mean, when those little kids were born, when my kids were born, none of them had an interest in serving me. None of them. And they weren't going to serve me. It, you know, one of the things that helps you grow in Christ is having children. Because we're called, Jesus said, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you must become the servant of all. And see, we don't want to do that. But when you have little kids, they're not going to serve you. I, I can't remember which one it was. I remember changing their diaper. And they're just kind of looking at me. And they squirt me right in the face. And it was sort of like they enjoyed it. I don't know why I'm being so graphic tonight. But I didn't enjoy that. Dirty diapers. You know, I, I, you know, we got all these reality shows and these guys doing all these great accomplishments. I, I remember, I, I mean, I, I saw some guy on ESPN, and he swam from San Francisco to Maui underwater without, <laughs> without oxygen. And, you know, some guy climbs Mount Everest without oxygen. You know, I say you're not a real man until you can change a dirty diaper without throwing up. You ever get that? It's been a long time. We need to get you in the nursery, Jim, and just get that servant quotient going again. Now, the reason I'm bringing all this up, guys, is that our righteousness, that's what it is to the Lord. I know that was graphic, but you won't forget that, will you? kind of makes him gag. Now, he doesn't gag, but you get the sense. It, it wretches the best we can do. So Jesus went to the cross. We were without hope, and he saved us. But when he saved us, good works were in the plan, and good works were in the equation. Do you understand that? One more time. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God not as a result of works that any man should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. That's what we want. We'll get back to James, but I want to I hit two things, just as kind of parentheses. The first one is the metaphor of salt. Uh, 
Turn real quick to Matthew 5. You're familiar with this out of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus said to his disciples. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. That's Matthew 5.13. God created salt, and God created salt with a purpose, and and salt accomplishes good works. Um, Here's a book, interesting book, called Salt, A World History. It shows you how little I have going on in my life that I would actually read this book. Sort of a tragic commentary on where I am in life. But I haven't read it all, but I'm working my way through it. Kind of fascinating. This guy, what's his name? Mark Kurlansky. And, I mean, who would spend their life writing on salt? I mean, this guy needs to get a life. Here's what he says. Yeah, bestseller. They've sold three copies, and I bought two of them. He says, um, a booklet was published by the Diamond Crystal Salt Company of St. Clair, Michigan. And the title was 101 Uses for Diamond Crystal Salt. The list of uses included keeping the colors bright on boiled vegetables, making ice cream freeze, whipping cream rapidly, getting more heat out of boiled water, removing rust, cleaning bamboo furniture, sealing cracks, stiffening white organdy, which I don't even know what that is, removing spots on clothes. Now, we're talking about salt. Putting out grease fires, making candles dripless, keeping cut flowers fresh, killing, killing poison ivy. I didn't know that. Treating dyspepsia, sprains, sore throats, and earaches. He goes on and says, far more than 101 uses for salt are well known. The figure often cited by the modern salt industry is 14,000 different uses of salt, including the manufacturing of pharmaceuticals, the melting of ice from winter roads, fertilizing agricultural fields, making soap, softening water, and dyeing textiles. We are the salt of the earth. We don't all do the same work. But what he does is he gives us different gifts, different abilities. He redeems us. He assigns us to a post. And we do works. And we look around at other guys and we think sometimes, gosh, I wish I was gifted like he is. I wish I was like him. God doesn't want you like him. God wants you to be you. God's using you. God's spreading you out. He's got you as salt. Now, there's another metaphor. So, so see, salt is incredibly useful for good works. 14,000 good works were the salt of the earth. There's another metaphor, the metaphor of fruit. Um, Book of John this time. We're going to John 15, but you better stop in Matthew 7. Because what we're told about in Matthew 7 is that not everyone, and this ties in with James, not everyone who says that they are believers are believers. Now, isn't that interesting? Huh. 
Not everyone who proclaims the word of God is in the family of God. Look at James, no, Matthew 7, 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You say, well, gosh, how can I, you know, how do I recognize these guys? And I've said many times, uh, I start with the hair. Did, did you get that? Weird hair tends to equal weird teaching. But that's not what the Bible says. That's just my deal. <laughs> what does the Bible say? Beware of the false prophets who come to you. But isn't it interesting how that often equates? What is this hair thing with these guys? Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. All right, well, how will I know them? You will know them by their what? By their fruits. By their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit. The bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Well, gosh, if you prophesy in his name, you must be in the camp. Not necessarily, as we're going to see. In your name, we cast out demons. Man, you're casting out demons. You must be in the camp. You must be on TV. You must have a Learjet. You can do that. And in your name, perform many miracles. Oh, I, I hold miracle services. Look what Jesus says. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It, it doesn't say a few will say this. It says many. So is it possible for someone to, on the outward, appear to be a believer in Christ and yet by the testimony of Jesus, not be believers that he has never known? Yes, that's possible. And it's just not ministry guy. It's anybody. You can be a professing Christian who's not a Christian. I find that interesting. Well, then how do you know them? You know them by their fruit. John 15. This all ties in back with James. John 15, 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, you guys have been working in the garden here at springtime, and, you know, I'll tell you what, I've got some trees, and I've got some dead branches. You know what I do with those suckers? I cut them, and I throw them. i got a pile that's going to be burned, which is what the Scripture says, because there's no fruit. There are no growth. There are no buds. There are no leaves. Okay? Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. I am the vine, verse 5. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, there seems to be, with these different metaphors, 
you got salt. You're the salt of the earth. Well, you know what? God uses salt to accomplish good works. In our lives, you know what he wants to do? He wants there to be fruit in our lives. When there's fruit, people are touched. When there's fruit, people are ministered to. When there's fruit, God is glorified. When there's fruit, I'm a better husband at home. When there's fruit, I'm a better dad to my kids. When there's fruit, I'm a better guy at work because I'm growing in integrity. See, that's called fruit. I mean, a case could be made that these things are all connected. You got salt, you got fruit, and in James, you got works. But you've also got works in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, with all that in mind, let's head back to James. You guys still hanging in there with me? Is this making sense? You see, we're just hitting the same truth from just different angles. That's what's happening here. Scripture interprets Scripture. So, this whole deal about faith and about works, this is not just unique to James. This fits what we read in Scripture. Somebody says they have faith. Somebody says they're in the camp. Somebody, Great, wonderful. Where's the fruit? Where are the works? I remember a long time ago talking with a guy, and we were actually working on some ministry projects together. And as we were talking, he was telling me about uh, he had just, um, in the last year, he, came, he was the only guy in, in his family that was a Christian. He had been home, and the year before had sat down with his sister and her husband and uh, led them to Christ. And uh, the thing that was interesting to me about that is that he had just spent some time, probably 15 minutes, telling me how they were living their lives and how they were treating each other and what they were doing to their kids and how they handled their business. And it was just, I mean, it was just really sordid. It was, it, it was just evil. And then at the end of this long diatribe, he says, but they're believers. I said, they're believers? He goes, yeah. And I wanted to say, believers in what? And um, he said, well, they're, they're, they're believers in Christ. I said, really? And how long have they been believing? Oh, you know, a year, year and a half, something like that. I said, you see any change in them at all? He goes, not really. I said, oh, that's interesting. I said, you don't, I mean, you don't see any change. He goes, quite frankly, I haven't seen any. I said, well, why do you think they're believers? He says, because they believe. I said, well, you know, James says that the demons believe. And he said, well, you know what I, my view is, is that you could be a believer and not have any fruit or good works for 50 or 60 years. I had a real problem with that, personally. And the reason I have a problem is because of what James says and because of what Ephesians 2 says and because of what John 15 says. Now, again, we're not talking works-based Christianity here. This is all by grace. But the principle is this. When Christ comes into our lives, he gives us a new heart. He regenerates us. I had a conversation recently with someone that has a ministry in this area to couples whose marriages are in trouble. Uh, they, they have a small group study, and all the couples in there, uh, their marriages have, at least one partner has been involved in adultery, and then most of the marriages 
they've both been involved in adultery. Now, these are Christian people. They go to churches in this area that we would all know. And as I was talking about these people, and we were just talking about their lives, well, how do they get into this? And what, you know, how are you working with them and all this? And the comment was made, well, they lead very interesting lives. I said, really? Yeah, they're all pretty much upscale, doing pretty well, nice homes, nice cars, good lifestyle. Um, on the weekends, they go out and party with their friends. And uh, I said, party? Well, they go out and get drunk. I said, really? Yeah. But they get up on Sunday morning, get their kids ready, and take them to church. Churches that teach the Bible and teach the Word of God. And then during the week, they're involved in these adulterous liaisons. And they're believers. Really. Um, I, uh, I made a run to the grocery store this morning. Uh, it was real critical because we were out of half and half. And it's one of the good works God has called me to do in my ministry is to go get half and half. So I did. And as I was making my way to the checkout counter, somebody called my name and I turned around. And um, it was someone that lives not too far away from me. And, uh, and this gal said, uh, hey, I wanted to tell you, uh, Steve, aren't you doing a conference this weekend in Corinth? Or Corinth, however you pronounce it. It's just up above Louisville. Not the Corinth in the Bible. But the Louisville guys are part of this cult up there. And I said, yeah, I'm in a conference this weekend. And she said, my husband's going. And I said, really? I said, that's very interesting. Now, the reason I said that's very interesting is that the last time I talked with this gal, she was telling me at Thanksgiving, Christian family, you know, that he came over Thanksgiving and announced that he was uh, involved in an affair with her best friend. And they're all Christians. And so he spent the holidays with this gal, and she left her family, and he leaves his family, and, all, you know, and, and she said, yeah, he's coming to your conference this week. And what I wanted to say was, why? Why is he coming? Now, you know what would be great is if the Spirit of God's working on it. And, and I'm hoping that I get some time with the guy. I remember John Piper telling a story about a guy in his church who was very involved, you know, ministry, the whole family, you know. Every time the church is open, they're there, you know, the whole thing. You know what I'm talking about? And he's having lunch with this guy. The reason he's having lunch with this guy is that the guy... Um, got into an adulterous affair with a gal at work and is leaving his wife and kids and shutting down the family. And uh, John's having lunch with the guy. And as they're talking, John says, you know, I'm just interested in why you're doing this and why you want to spend eternity in hell. And the guy about choked on his salmon. And he, he says, John, don't you believe in eternal security? And John said, you bet I believe in eternal security. For Christians. What I want to know is what makes you think you're one of them. 
Now, I think that's a legitimate question. In other words, you're telling me you're shacking up with this chick, and I see no remorse, I see no brokenness, I see no conviction of sin, I, I, I see no concern about where you are with Christ, I see no response to the Scriptures, I see no response to the Spirit of God. If you're a believer, there's a spirit that lives within you who's part of the Trinity. Is that not right? Now, he's not called the loving spirit, although he's loving. He's not called the immutable spirit, even though he's immutable. He's not called the sovereign spirit, even though he's sovereign. He's called the holy spirit. Is he not? And holiness means absolute moral purity. And you see, when the Spirit of God takes residence in someone's life and you're regenerated by the Spirit of God, that Holy Spirit lives within you. And when a believer, we're not saying believers don't get into sin because we do get into sin. But when we get into sin as believers, the Spirit of God makes us extremely uncomfortable. And he convicts us and he reproves us and he rebukes us and he exhorts us. And that's why when sometimes things aren't right in our lives, we're miserable as believers. Why? Because we've got, we've got a heavenly Father, and his Spirit is within us, and that Spirit checks us and rebukes us. He, he, he works on that nerve of conscience in our life. So let's go back to John Piper with this guy in his church. This guy, there's nothing in this guy's heart. They're, they're, he's, he's sleeping well at night. He's doing well. He's, he's on cruise control. He's as fulfilled and happy as he's ever been. Well, then we got to ask the question, is the Holy Spirit even in your life? You see, we're walking a fine line here. But it's a line we got to address. You know what's interesting to me in 2 Corinthians 13? Flip over there real quick. An interesting phrase, interesting um, admonition in 2 Corinthians 13. And we don't talk about it a whole lot. Um, it's in the Word of God. Verse 5. Look at this. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. That's a good thing to do. Uh, back in 1980, 81, something like that, there was uh, what they called the Congress on Inerrancy. And it, it was held in San Diego. And, and it was... A bunch of evangelists, Ray Steadman really got it going and got a bunch of Christian leaders together and had this huge deal in, in San Diego uh, to take a stand for biblical inerrancy because the inerrancy of the Word of God was under assault in all the Southern Baptist seminaries and in the Lutheran seminaries. And, you know, maybe you know about that. Harold Denzel wrote a book called Battle for the Bible. But inerrancy was under attack. So all these evangelical leaders got together in San Diego and, and I went down there and, and I was a young rookie pastor and I remember, I mean, I mean I'm in this convention center in San Diego, and I'm about 28 or 29, and I remember I was standing there with Mary, we were looking for a seat, and Howard Hendricks walked by. And I said, hey, Howard Hendricks just walked by. I thought that was a pretty big deal. 
you know. That was to me like seeing a rock star. And uh, Adrian Rogers, you know, walked by. And uh, he had some sermon notes, and I reached in and pulled them because I, I like to use his stuff. <laughs> I'm just a young rookie, you know. And you're seeing all these big shots walk by. I'm just a young guy, you know. It was a big deal. It was pretty impressive. Uh, some great preachers, great messages on the Word of God. The last guy to speak was R.C. Sproul. I'll never forget his message. Sproul was talking about the inerrancy and all this, and, you know, all the great messages that have been done, Bill Bright and all this kind of stuff, you know. And, and then R.C. said, you know, I've got a question. I'm talking about the Word of God and the power of the Word of God and all this. He said, i got a question, and I was thinking about this last night. He said, what if I'm not saved? Man, you're R.C. Sproul. You've got to be saved. That was my response. And, and you know what he was doing? He was going to 2 Corinthians 13. He says, as I read the Scriptures, the inerrant Word of God, we all agree it's inerrant. That's why we're here. You know what I read in the Scriptures? There are men who are doctrinally pure, but they're not saved men. Because all they've ever done is give a mental assent to the gospel. It's never hit their heart. I find it interesting back in James. Now, now, see, we're walking a fine line because, see, in the church in which I was raised, I heard that all the time. Test yourselves to be the fit. Test yourselves. Test your I was always testing myself. I didn't know anything about grace. And every time I tested myself, I came up short because I was looking at my works. But see, well, well how do you test yourself? You look at your life. You look at your heart. Have I really embraced Christ? Is, is Jesus in my life? Am I trusting Jesus as my Savior? And am I following Jesus? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, catch this, and they follow me. Can I tell you something? Let me just shoot straight with you. If, if you're getting drunk on the weekend and you're snorting cocaine and you're sleeping around, if I were you, you might want to take a test. And can I tell you something? If you are a believer, if Christ is in your life, you better strap on your seatbelt, pal, because he's going to get a strap and he's going to whip your behind because he loves you. Because those whom he loves, he disciplines. Just thought I'd let you know. You're not going to get away with that. He loves you too much. He loves you too much to let you go down that road if you're a believer. Now, if you're... And, 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 See, the danger is, well, you know, we're adding the grace. We're not adding the grace. We're just saying, you know what my concern is? Is that there's some guy here that thinks he knows Christ, but you don't know Christ, you just know about Christ. So examine yourself. I guess the other question would be, those who are close to you, what would they say? Have they seen any change? Have they seen any fruit? Are you a better husband now? Uh, let's put it this way. Uh, how long have you known Christ? How long have you been walking with Christ? Oh, you know, five years, okay. Let me ask you, has there been any change? Would your wife say she's seen any change in you in five years since you received Christ? Would anybody see they've seen a change? If the answer is no, then you need to examine yourself. Belief is more than just intellectual assent. It's got to hit the heart. Uh, and you say, well, how do you know that? Because the demons believe 
The demons are believers. The first ones to proclaim when Jesus started his earthly ministry that he was the son of God were the demons. And Jesus shut them up. What we're talking about here, guys, is that there needs to be evidence of growth. When Christ comes into my life, I'm regenerated by the Spirit of God. I'm regenerated. There's a new heart. And I'm to be transformed. There's a pro- We're justified by faith in Christ, but there's a concept called sanctification. Big word. You know what sanctification means? It means I'm set apart. Sanctification means, yes, I'm justified by faith in Christ, in Christ alone. But because he has called me and because he has chosen me, now what he wants to do is he wants to change my life. Uh, What's Romans 12? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You read Ephesians, let him who steals, steal no longer. Why? Because Christ is in my life. You see? Even in James 2, that first section, you guys still with me here? Did you give me that five-minute thing, Lou? I mean, if you haven't, that's fine. I got what? I got seven. I'll take 15. (laughs) Thank you. The opening of James... Chapter 2, which we haven't hit yet, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But James 2, verses 1 through 13, is basically talking about the sin of being partial to rich people in the church. So a rich guy comes in, he's got his gold ring, he's got his fine clothes, all that stuff. Verse 3, you pay special attention to the one who's wearing fine clothes. You say, sit here in a good place. You say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down by my footstool. He says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? See, what he's saying is, that's not how you do it. You don't treat rich people better than you treat poor people. You don't be partial. That's the whole message of 13 verses in James. And then he sums up that idea of not being partial to people. Before we come to know Christ, we got all kinds of prejudices. We got, we're partial in all kinds of different ways. But when we come to Christ, there ought to be a change. So he gets to the end of 13, and then he goes to 14, and without taking a breath, he says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone he has, says he has faith, but he has no works? So in other words, you're telling me Christ has come into your life, and he's changed you, but you've still got those feelings of, of prejudice towards certain groups, and that hardness in your heart, and there's been no change, there's been no deviation, there's been... See, he's really starting to meddle here, isn't he? Nineteen is the one that really gets me. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. My faith has got to go beyond that of demons. It's got to be more than just in my intellect. It's got to be in my heart. And then he gives two examples. He gives Abraham and Rahab. Was not Abraham our father justified by our works when he offered up Isaac his son on on the altar? Now, let's ask this question. Was Abraham justified before he put uh, Isaac on the altar? And the answer is yes. But part of that process that God did in Abraham's life was not only to have him forgiven, but for him to do good works. 
See, what the good works do is they confirm that there's been a change of heart. They confirm that there's been a change in nature. Then he jumps to Rahab. Verse 25, in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? And the answer is yes. Now, that's an interesting one because Rahab was a pagan woman. All she knew was that this, these people camped outside Jericho. There was a God who was leading them, and she wanted to know that God. So the spies show up, and then the, the guys show up and say, where are the spies? And she's hidden them on the roof in the, in the flax, covered them with those stalks that are about six feet long. And she says, oh, they went that way. They didn't go that way. They went that way. And in her, listen, she'd never been to Bible study fellowship. She'd never been to a women of faith conference. She'd never read the Old Testament. All she knew was she was trying to cover for these good guys who love God, and she wanted to know that God. And God looked at her heart, and she's mentioned in Hebrews 11 as a woman of faith. Isn't that interesting? Because God deals with us right where we are. I like the way Warren Wearsby sums this all up. Let me just read this to you. He says, James in these verses is not contradicting Paul. Paul in Romans 4 and in Galatians 3 is explaining how the sinner is justified and given a right standing before God. James, on the other hand, is writing about how the saved person proves that salvation before others. People have no right to believe that we are saved if they do not see a change in our lives. A sinner is saved by faith without works. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But true saving faith leads to works. That's Ephesians 2.10. We've already been over that. Being a Christian is not a matter of what we say with the lips. It involves what we do with the life. Faith that does not lead to works is dead faith, not living faith. There's a challenge in verse 18, show me your faith without your works. Well, that's impossible to do. The only way faith can be expressed in a Christian's life is by practical, loving obedience to the Word of God. You say, what are the good works the Lord wants me to do? I don't know. And you don't, and you don't. He's got works for you to do. He's got works for me to do. You know, in Christianity, we got all these different things that we consider to be spiritual, the mark of spirituality. For some people, they think it's real spiritual to be uh, slain in the Spirit in certain groups. Very sincere people that love the Lord. Others, if you speak in a certain tongue, that's an evidence of spirituality. In fact, I've been approached by people, well, have you done that? Have you had this experience? Because the implication is if you haven't, you haven't received everything he has for you. Even though the scripture says all do not speak in tongues, do they? Well-meaning people. But we have different badges of spirituality. Or have you done this? Or have you done this? Or have you done... Can I, can I tell you guys something? There is nothing more spiritual in the Christian life than obeying the Word of God. That's it. You can't trump that. When the Spirit of God... And we talked about this last week. When the Spirit of God is residing in my life, He wants to control me. And when He controls me, there's fruit, I'm salt, and there are going to be some good works. And it's a process. Good works are the result of faith and grace. 
And as we walk with him, we'll see more and more, and we'll see muses, and it's the greatest thing in all the world. Is that not true? Don't you want to be used? Sure you do. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for grace and grace alone. We, we understand we couldn't do a thing to save ourselves. We, we were incapable. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. You took the initiative as you called Lazarus out of that grave. You called us out of the grave. You, you made us alive because we were dead as a doornail. And then, Lord, you infused spiritual life into us. We called upon your name because of the work you were doing in our hearts. Uh, that, that's just the greatest miracle, that we were regenerated by your Spirit. Lord, I, I would pray that those of us who know you, that we would uh, just have such a sense of assurance that Jesus paid it all. And such a sense of appreciation for what Jesus did. Uh, Lord, we can't do anything without you. We can't take a breath without you. We need you for every step. Sometimes we don't think we do, but sometimes you put us flat on our backs to let us know that apart from you, we can do nothing. We acknowledge that. But thank you for the assurance that the work you do in our lives is a lasting work. We have eternal life right now, and eternal life is forever. It can't be taken away. We can't die. And even if we die, yet shall we live, Jesus said. I, I would pray for the guy who might be here that has deceived himself into thinking that he has experienced saving faith when in actuality he hasn't because there's no evidence. There's no change. There's not a change in his heart. There's not a change in his behavior. Pretty much the same. And it's just coming to my mind, that statistic that I saw from the Billy Graham Association, that even by their own records, they figure that of all the people that come forward, only 10 to 15% are truly converted. Huh. So Lord Jesus, we just take a minute to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to make sure that we're of the faith, that we have embraced you fully and completely. We're on a journey. It's a process. We want to grow in our faith. We want to become men that can be used by you. Thank you for your discipline in our lives. Thank you that when we start messing around with sin and we start drifting, you kind of slap us to the side of the head just because you love us so much and you get our attention. Help us not to drift. Help us not to wander. Help us to stay close to Jesus and to submit to his authority and to his word. That's the safest place in all the world to be. We pray these things in his name.